Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salek. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, the Health Secretary has confirmed the government won't be recommending wearing face masks in offices. Now, there have been questions over whether that would be compulsory after it was announced the coverings would have to be worn in shops in England from the 24th of this month. Matt Hancock's also tried to get rid of any confusion surrounding the rules in the hospitality sector. If there's table service, then it is not necessary uh, to have a mask. But in any uh, shop, you do need the mask. So if you're going up to the counter in Pret to buy takeaway, that is a shop that is Pret operating as a shop. That was Matt Hancock, the health secretary, clearing up uh, where there's been a little bit of confusion around whether or not to wear face masks. But you know what, Roger? I'm going to give you some good news. UK levels of COVID-19 falling faster than previously reported in May. This is uh, a study of 120,000 people. It took place before the lockdown was eased. There were an average of 13 positive cases for every 100,000 people. Uh, this is according to uh, this review of uh, from Imperial College London. But, and this is important, 18 to 24-year-olds most likely to test positive, suggesting they were less likely to stick to lockdown rules. That's been something that people have mooted for a while. Uh, and it also says that people with Asian ethnicity were more likely to test positive, which could explain the higher death rates in this group. We don't know why, uh, but care home staff and healthcare workers also more likely to test positive. But the good news is not as many uh, people or the infection falling faster than we thought back in May as we get a clearer picture of exactly what happened. Well, indeed. And this is, uh, you know, the science is constantly evolving. That's half the reason all these things are changing. But we're still not absolutely clear what's going on. But one issue that's really become very apparent during this crisis is the divergent paths followed by the UK's devolved parts. Northern Ireland, for example, face masks in shops, at, as we understand it right now, are not to be compulsory, where they are obviously in England and, in fact, in Scotland. Travel restrictions in Northern Ireland have only just come into line with the other parts of the kingdom as well. Well, joining us now is Geoffrey. Donaldson, DUP MP for Larne Valley, the parliamentary leader of the Democratic Unionist Party. Geoffrey Donaldson, thanks so much for being with us. Now, so Geoffrey, doesn't the variation that we've seen in all this 
just increase the sense of a disunited kingdom, which, uh, by definition, is what you don't want to see. I don't think so. I mean, it, 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 uh, it proves the value of having devolved administrations within the United Kingdom um, and dealing with regional variations. Um, well, I think that if you look at Northern Ireland, obviously we've got a, the Irish Sea between um, Northern Ireland and Great Britain, um, which I, I think has helped us to control the spread of the virus um, to an extent. Um, air travel was um, greatly restricted um, during the um, the severest part of the lockdown period. Uh, and we were about two weeks behind the, um, um, southern England uh, with the spread of the infection. So we had two weeks more to prepare for it. And I think that made a difference in terms of Northern Ireland's preparedness. Um, also, I think our strong sense of community in Northern Ireland has helped as well. I think people in, the, in, the, in, in general have been you know, very disciplined in responding to the measures introduced by the Northern Ireland Executive. Um, much of those measures have been in line with what's happened in uh, England and other parts of the UK, but there have been some variations taking account of local circumstances. I think that's actually a healthy thing in the UK. Um, I believe that the strength of the United Kingdom is uh, that how we, um, uh, uh, when it is in the national interest, we act together, but at times uh, we have a separate approach because of uh, regional um, and in-country variations. Well, well, one place where there is variation is on face coverings in shops, which is not currently mandated in Northern Ireland. Are you behind the curve there? There's a, a lot of European countries where this is now the case, including now, as we're seeing, uh, in England. Well, the Northern Ireland Executive will be considering that. Um, uh, it, it is, of course, at the moment open to people to wear a face mask if they so wish. Uh, many do. I've seen them in Northern Ireland uh, 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 in shops. Um, it is now compulsory to wear face masks on public transport in Northern Ireland. And so we're keeping the matter under constant review and we will, if necessary, introduce um, uh, compulsory wearing of face masks in shops if, if we feel that is required. But the, the, um, the R factor in Northern Ireland, the R number, is lower at the moment than it is in other parts of the UK. So regional variations, I think, are appropriate um, depending on the level of uh, infection and its spread. Now, Sir Jeffrey, you mentioned a few moments ago the sense of community in Northern Ireland, and obviously you have a, an administration that brings together the two major parts of the, the community, the nationalists and the unionists. Um, but it's not entirely harmonious, is it? I mean, there was a dispute just a few weeks ago about uh, the deputy minister attending a Sinn Féin funeral without social distancing. Of course, we've also seen the tensions over the marching season and what's allowed and what isn't. I mean, this is actually makes it all much more difficult, doesn't it, to run the province? Well, that has been a challenge that has been with us for many years. It didn't just arise with COVID-19. But when you consider that we were without a government for some three years and that uh, we were only able to reform um, and, and reinstitute the Northern Ireland Executive and Assembly in January and um, uh, February of this year, I think we've done remarkably well. And that the Northern Ireland Executive generally has had a very coherent and cohesive approach to COVID-19. I think it's a matter of great regret that the Deputy First Minister undermined the public messaging of the Executive by attending a funeral uh, where there were uh, literally hundreds of people in attendance. Uh, social distancing was ignored. And, uh, and, and it, it comes back to the debate that has taken place in other parts of the UK, for example, 
we had the debate around Dominic Cummings, uh, senior advisor to the Prime Minister. It's the same in Northern Ireland. Should the people who are setting the rules on COVID-19 not be setting an example to the rest of the public about upholding those rules? So it's not really that much different from other parts of the UK. Has that all been swept under the rug, though? Because not so long ago, Arlene Foster was calling for Michelle O'Neill to step down. Well, to step aside whilst there was an investigation into what had happened with her attendance and that of other senior Sinn Féin members at the um, funeral. But it's not just the DUP. Uh, there are five political parties forming the Northern Ireland Executive, uh, and four out of the five parties shared our view and voted in a motion in the Northern Ireland Assembly to censure the Deputy First Minister and her colleagues for the actions they took. So there was widespread public concern and cross-party, cross-community concern about the actions of the Deputy First Minister. Uh, At the very least, we felt she should have apologised for what she did um, and stepped aside from her duties for a period um, to allow the the various investigations, including a police investigation, to take place because, of course, this potentially involved breaching the law. So, Geoffrey, let me move you on to another very vexed subject, uh, which is a grave concern in Northern Ireland, which is the outcome of Brexit in the sense of what it will mean for your trade uh, experience with the rest of the, the UK, but also with, with, Ireland, with the Irish Republic. Now, the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee, as I'm sure you're aware, said the current proposals for implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol depend on the EU granting waivers from export declarations and exit summary declarations. The government, it said, must set out in a timely fashion how it's going to facilitate unfettered access if it doesn't secure that waiver. I mean, that is a big worry right now because it's getting quite close. It is indeed, yes, and um, uh, you know we're obviously concerned that we continue to have unfettered access to the um, the market in Great Britain, which is our biggest market. Over seventy percent of goods that leave Belfast Port are destined for Great Britain. So it would be devastating to our economy uh, if um, uh, uh, regulations and um, customs requirements and, uh, that were to be imposed by the EU impacted on that trade damaged our economy. And I have to say, you know, peace and prosperity go hand in hand. If the stated objective of the EU is to protect the peace process in Northern Ireland, then it has to protect our ability to trade with the rest of the UK, because that is absolutely central to our economic progress. It is central to economic stability in Northern Ireland and ergo to political stability. So if the EU genuinely want to protect the peace process, then let's um, address these issues in a way that is flexible, uh, that um, requires the absolute minimum friction uh, on trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. That is crucial for our economy, and especially now with the economy so impacted by COVID-19. What about the state of businesses? We saw a report from the Institute of Directors earlier in the week saying that only a quarter of UK companies are ready. What's the state in Northern Ireland where there are so many more things to think about? Well, of course, we're um, uh, talking to the UK government um, and uh, to ensure that businesses in Northern Ireland are provided with guidance on how to prepare. Um, we've got six months left until the new trading arrangements with the EU hopefully are, are, are brought into existence. We hope there will be a, um, a uh, um, an agreement between the UK and the EU. We recognise that at the moment we don't know the final shape of that, so it's difficult for businesses to prepare in that sense. 
but we want the government to do more to help business prepare, including providing funding support for that, those preparations. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. We've got to start with this Huawei story, the UK banning the company from its next-gen mobile networks. That happened yesterday. What we've got now is a swift response from Beijing. They're calling it disappointing and wrong. Uh, The background to this is that phone companies now can't install new equipment from the end of this year, and they're going to phase it out uh, through to 2027. The US is unsurprisingly pretty happy about this. They say it advances transatlantic security. Uh, But what's interesting about this is uh, those reports around Donald Trump saying that it was him that uh, that caused the UK to make this decision. That has been swiftly rebuked by Matt Hancock, but always awkward when you have to contradict the US president and you want to preserve that special relationship. Yes, it's an interesting line to to move along, particularly in the current circumstances. But here's something really interesting. For a Conservative government, apparently they're looking at capitals, get capital gains tax. Uh, it's making headlines today. Chancellor Rishi Sunak apparently has ordered a review of the CGT. That comes as the Treasury, of course, does need to rather find ways to claw back some of the £190 billion it's poured into supporting the economy so far during the virus crisis. The Tories pledge not to raise income tax or VAT. But a Treasury official who asked not to be named said the review was, well, standard practice. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this isn't going anywhere. It just seems too unconservative, doesn't it? Going after homeowners, going after investors, going after the richest in society to try and get some of this money back. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, but we've got to stick with the economic story and talk about the North. Uh, the There is a report here from Indeed, the job site, that says that people in the North are going to face stiffer competition to find work than elsewhere in the UK. Think the red wall, think the blue wall, all of that uh, part of the country, they're set to bear the brunt of the economic downturn. They're also areas showing the highest death rates from the virus. So a double blow there. Vacancies have dropped two thirds since the lockdown began. And on top of that, there are 50 percent more people chasing those jobs in the north and the Midlands than down in the southeast. So it's and tricky if, if you're yeah. living over there. Very difficult. And of course, the uh, inequalities don't stop there because the British Medical Association is calling out MPs in the northeast of England to take urgent concerted action to take tackle health inequalities because the region has suffered one of the highest virus death rates in the country. The BMA says the northeast had suffered disproportionately during the pandemic due to pre-existing health inequalities brought about by employment, education, housing and other social factors. And the letter to 29 MPs from the BMA and to the largest decreases in life expectancy was seen in the most deprived areas of the northeast 
Mm, so Boris Johnson and co have their work cut out, don't they, if they want to level up and deliver on all of those promises to, to create a more even society around the country. But anyway, let's step back. Let's look at the bigger picture, because we've seen the direction of travel in Britain very much being one of opening up in terms of lifting the lockdown, particularly in terms of getting business trading again, encouraging people to get out there, spend, spend, spend and get the economy moving. But at the same time, We've got all of these local outbreaks, more than 100 a week, according to Matt Hancock. And of course, the mo most notable one is in Leicester, where the city and the surrounding area is back in lockdown. So a key question for the prime minister, who we know is a big fan of polls and focus groups, is what do the public think of all of this? Well, joining us now to give us some answers is Dr. Michelle Harrison, the global CEO of Kantar's public division. They've got some research out today. Uh, Michelle, first of all, how happy are people with the speed at which we're moving out of this lockdown. Oh, good morning. Um, actually, I think one of the interesting things that's come out in over the last month is there has been some resistance to the speed of change. And I think this really relates to the degree of fear that is emerging around a second wave. And so, you know, looking at the data this morning, we've got 81% um, of the people we've interviewed saying they're really very fearful of a second wave of COVID. And that is turning into very high levels of support for local lockdown. So up at the, again, up in the 80%. So that's a, a new feature of the way in which the public have been responding to the crisis and, and shows the, the sort of real extent of the fig at the moment. Are the, is the concern really about the second wave? Is that what we're hearing now? Because I mean, obviously, second waves and first waves, a lot of it's very hard to distinguish because we don't know, of course, uh, how this disease is working its way through. But is that the kind of thing that's in people's minds? Well, I think it is. I think um, the level of fear still around health is, is very high because when we look at how people are viewing the government's response overall, and actually levels of, of confidence in the government aren't, aren't that high. They've remained as they were for the last few weeks at around the 50%. But what we see is still the majority of people saying that the government is emphasising the economy at the, uh, at the expense of health and that they should be putting a little bit more focus on health. So that's so interesting given just how, how terrible the economic impact is. Because what we've also seen, and this is, you know, a trend continuing we've got a third a third of people saying that there has been an impact on their income and we're seeing now an increasing number saying that they believe it to be permanent so we see this terrible economic impact but still a, a very significant fear um, in terms of in terms of health and that is driving to you know ongoing support for for pretty significant measures I suppose the government response would be, look, we're reopening the country, we're reopening the economy, and where there are problems, we're going to deal with it in a localised manner. Is that something that is floating with people? Actually, it is. I mean, I, I, to see a figure like 80% of people saying they support local lockdowns, that, that, is, that is tremendously high from a public polling point of view. We're seeing other things coming through. So we've seen a big increase in the use of masks. I mean, over the last few weeks, we've now got 50% of the public saying they're already using um, masks regularly. So that's before it becomes a regulation. We see figures up in the 95% for older people in terms of support of these measures. And even for younger people who, uh, you know, have less to fear around their health, they're still broadly highly supportive of lockdown. So again, 
um, you know, a, a, a sort of really illustrative of the degree of concern that people have about this illness. I suppose one of the major issues uh, in practical terms from this fear is to do with consumer confidence. I mean, are people actually willing to come out and uh, spend money? Do they even think they have enough money or will have enough money to spend? So confidence in the economy. What's the picture on that front? And confidence in the economy is the lowest we've seen in, uh, since we've ever measured this in, in the last decade. So, you know, we talked about the fact a third of households have said, uh, that they've seen a real impact on their income, and more and more of them are thinking that that's permanent, particularly amongst young people. But we've got the same number saying they're finding it harder now to meet their household budget than they were last year. And we don't have um, very high figures at all in terms of confidence into the future. So the majority of people think this is here to stay and that things aren't going to get better anytime soon. So a very difficult situation to govern through. But overall, the public's still very concerned and primarily concerned about the health impact of a second wave of COVID. Got to ask you, Michelle, about something that there have been a lot of very vocal views on, and that's face masks. What, what is the general view on whether people are happy to wear these or not? I think it's going to, uh, the data suggesting to us it's going to get good support. So four weeks ago, it wasn't. And four weeks ago, not many people were wearing them. We've seen this big up, you know, big uplift just in the last few weeks. And older people and younger people um, are very happy with that. There's one particular group. It's uh, middle-aged men. And they are the group who have the least use so far of face masks. But again, I do think it will be broadly supported because of this level of anxiety about a second wave. Now, how is all this playing in the more in the wider political concerns, in the sense of how people view the government's abilities, their competence, but also the extent, I suppose, we're a long way from election, to which they would support the government in, in, in voting? I mean, how is that shaping up? So, I mean, these are interesting times, and, and uh, we're looking at data now and patterns that we just haven't seen before. So whilst we've got uh, government levels or public support for how government handling the crisis, pretty low, down in the 50s, whereas, you know, two months ago it was up in the 80s, it hasn't yet really had an impact on, on Labour um, really getting, you know, increasing political mileage. Conservatives have held, you know, from our data, a 10-point lead over Labour and actually have increased so that we've got them at 45 and Labour at 35% in terms of voting intention. So, you know, we might have expected Labour to be making more ground. We're not seeing it. Uh, so Labour not making more ground, is that because of uh, a, a lack of uh, recognisability for their new leader or are they just not managing to cut through with their messages? I think they're just not managing to cut through with their messaging. So... At this point in time, the Conservatives have got sort of this middling support for the way they're handling it. Um, but I think what people are thinking about right now is what's going to happen this autumn, how they're going to hold on to their jobs and how they're going to avoid, uh, you know, healthcare crises within their own families. So I think people are looking very much at the here and now. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. 
To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.